Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Good morning, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. I'm in the presence of a very special guest. This is episode 27, and her name is Hashaki Nichols, and she resides in Atlanta, Georgia. She's a paralegal, and she has a master's degree in administration. She's running as an independent under the banner of the Redemption Party for the President of the United States in 2024. I thank you for accepting that invitation, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yes, we just talked a few minutes off the air and, whoa, I have a lot of questions and that's a good thing. And I hope my audience definitely gets the benefit of the information and enjoys this interview with us. I do want to give an ad before we start and say that I appreciate my listeners and viewers. We've reached out to 33 different countries and the goal is to reach 100 different countries by the end of 2023. So this pod has um, a little bit for everyone. We have a large international audience as well as domestic, and I wanted to be that way on purpose because this not only educates about culture, but politics as well. And it's good to get a healthy dose of both to sort of understand each other better as people. But I do have a question uh, for Hashaki starting out. Can you just give the audience um, a, a sentiment of how you grew up as a person, how you navigated this difficult world that we know um, as the earth? and Tell us a little bit about how you got into politics initially. Okay. Well, um, my name is Shaki Nichols, and I was born in South Bend, Indiana, which is the home of Notre Dame. So grew up in a very cold area, and my mother was not happy with that. And she grew up there, and she decided to move us to California. So I actually grew up in Southern California in Garden Grove. So a lot of my upbringing was near the ocean, in perfect weather, which was very enjoyable as a youth. And I always, you know, got to hang around individuals that were in politics, mayors, different councilmen. I was a part of a drill team card called the Garden Grove Gardettes. So we would actually do performances and different parades and we would get to meet different people in that arena. So I always kind of grew up around people in politics. Um, in Garden Grove, a lot of people may have heard of it, may have not. It's near Anaheim, so I, w- I grew up near Disneyland. So with that, there were a lot of individuals there in my life that had a political background. They were very involved in the community, which spurred my desire to be a part of the community. A lot of people will probably say, well, why did you wait so long to <laughs> actually jump in the arena? Well, I have three children. And their ages are 30, 25, and 23. And I have a six-year-old grandson. And I really didn't want to jump into the arena until they were old enough to really sustain themselves and be, you know, great adults. Because there are a lot of things, especially as women, that we aspire to. But for me, it was just more timing that I really wanted to wait. And I always had political aspirations. I just really didn't know where I wanted to focus my energy. And last year, 
when I just saw the divide in the country, I just saw where our country was going. I really did not hear or see any individuals out there that I wanted to support or back. And that's when I decided that I was going to run for president of the United States, which is definitely a large challenge. It's it's a big arena, but a lot of my focus is at the federal level, not necessarily at the local level, because I've really seen, especially over the past two years, how the federal level has affected the local level and how we really need to do better at the federal level to support those at the local level. So I get this a lot um, when people talk about strategy, how do we change the system that we're living under? And I tend to agree that things at the federal level have to be changed first before we can focus on anything else because the federal level influences so much the local and the state. Um, but I think that's maybe just a difference of opinion I have with some people um, of mine, but it's, I, I do agree that the federal level issues have to, they need immediate attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do have ramifications for the rest of the country. You say you're located in Atlanta, Georgia right now? Yes. How do we go um, from South Bend to to Cali to Atlanta? Well, um, in 2006, I was married to somebody else and he, he had relatives here and they were really just like, yeah, you should check it out. It's really good. And we really, as a family, we wanted to change. We had spent a little bit of time in Indiana because my ex-husband, his parents, and his family, they were a little bit older. And I really wanted to spend time with them before anybody passed away. I'm glad we did because six people in the family had actually passed away in a two-year period. So my children got to, you know, not my younger two, but my oldest daughter, she got to spend time with family and friends and really make those connections. So I was grateful for that. But that's what brought me to Georgia the first time, 2010. Then I moved back to California, spent time with family there, and um, unfortunately, my sister had passed away during that time. So I was glad that I was in California at that time to really spend time with my family, my mom, my brother, and other relatives. Then um, my oldest daughter had my grandson. <laughs> and wow. his dad lived here in Georgia. And his dad ended up buying a house so they could you know, come together as a family. And my daughter asked me if I would move back this way to help her raise my grandson. So that's what brought me back. And then I met my husband that I'm married to now while I was here. So it wasn't a bad thing. (laughs) It's really good. (laughs) That's good. And so going back to your um, comments about this political acumen at a young age, had you ran for public office before this run that you're making now? No, I've just usually worked in the background with the political arena. I've spent time working at in city government. I worked for the city of Costa Mesa in Orange County, California, with the department development services department. So I got to set up a lot of the meetings and, you know, get to meet the mayors and the different councilmen that sat on the board and really just see how everything happens from the background. And that's the interesting part about it because everybody wants to see, well, what happens, you know, when you're kind of on the stage, but nobody really talks about, okay, all the paperwork that goes together, all of the laws that you have to actually put together and the notices that have to go out to individuals 
in the community to make sure that they're aware of things that are happening in their city and hear their grievances and understand that as a city, you really need to listen to your constituents because they determine who's going to sit in those political offices and how they're going to support their city going forward. So it was definitely a good lesson that I got to learn in working in those spaces. And when you were growing up and just until this point in your life, have you been affiliated with any of the major parties like previously? And like what's kind of been your political transformation to kind of get to this point? Yeah, so growing up, my you know family was Democrat, so that's kind of the route I followed. When I was eighteen is when <laughs> yeah, when I was eighteen, that's really when I uh, started noticing politics a little bit more. When I graduated from high school, going into college, and I started paying attention to Clinton and Bush and what was going on, and you know Bush Senior talking about a new world order, and then Clinton when he came in how he got the windfall of money from the tech boom and just really seeing their progression as politicians. So I was just one of those kids, you know, I know random facts about presidents like Truman. He liked to play poker in the Oval Office. I don't know how many people know that, but I found it interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but just it politically, I really just held on to really paying attention to what was affecting me from what people were saying in Washington and just mm -hmm. making those steady connections and saying, well, why is that? So definitely started off Democrat. Then when I was, I want to say around 2014 is when I started looking at the Republican party because I started looking at my values and I said, well, probably I lean a little bit more Republican. And a lot of people said, well, maybe you were just more of a moderate Democrat. So there's all these niches in here. So I decided to change my political affiliation to Republican. And then when I saw what the Republican Party was about, I was like, I really, I'm not with you guys either because you're extreme in the other way and not being silly, but my husband always says this about them. He's like, they are so gung-ho about something, but they have no plan. Like what's your mm -hmm. plan? <laughs> can you at least give me three points to what, where you're trying to get like that's all I need I just need to know like three different areas that's it you don't have to you know go into a soliloquy you don't have to dance around the question just let me know three things that you're going to do to get to where you're so passionate about and it's sad they can't do that so in running for president I was like okay I definitely want to be an independent I don't want to be affiliated with either party I want to be neutral but then I found out you actually have to have a party regardless. Even if you make one up, I'm sure you, you saw that there is the unicorn party. <laughs> I did. I saw I, that. <laughs> yeah, that, that I had a debate with. And, you know, it doesn't make me giggle, but I'm just letting people know, like, you have to have a party if you're going to run for this office. And so I uh, prayed about it. And God was like the redemption party. And I was like, that works because that's a one word. And if somebody said, you know, what party you're affiliated with, I'm affiliated with the redemption party and I'm a redemptionist, just like if you were to be a Republican or a Democrat. And it says a lot in one word because I definitely truly believe that our country can be redeemed back to sovereignty. It can happen. It's just a matter of what that looks like and if we're willing to kind of go through the aches and pains to get there. 
Okay, there's a couple of questions I have just from this. I'm enjoying this because I'm learning as we go. And I was surprised when you told me before the interview that you have to register on that party. Is there a reason for that? And who determines that you have to register as a party? Well, that's really determined by the FEC and also is determinative of how you get on the ballot in certain states. So that's really what it comes down to with your party affiliation, because you can be a write-in mm -hmm. and still stay independent and not necessarily get on the ballot. But if you want to be on the ballot as an actual candidate, you do have to have a party that's behind you. And so they do have the independent party. It is an actual political party. And I did reach out to them. I didn't hear anything back. So I was like, well, you know what? Maybe that's not the party I'm supposed to be affiliated with. And I'm glad that I'm not because in actually creating my own party that I'm running under, I get to really kind of steer and, you know, go in a focus and direction that is complementary of my campaign. Now I do have a chairman. I'm not the chairman of the party. There is somebody else that is the chairman of the party. So, and that individual's actually looking for other people to become candidates within the party. So it will outlive this election cycle. It won't mm -hmm. just be for this election cycle. What I'm really hoping is that the Redemption Party can continue to actually be a place for those that are politically homeless right now. And they don't want to be super conservative and they don't want to be super liberal. They're, they're somewhere in between where they want to be, but they really see the integrity, maybe not like I see it, but I really see the erosion of integrity in both parties. And it's horrible. We've got George Santos. He is a pathological liar. And he is still in Congress. No one's called for him to step down. I'm just like, what, what are you doing? Like, we all can see you. We all can see this. If this was anybody else, they, they've been under the jail weeks ago. They'd have been extradited to whatever country was looking for them. They'd be like, we found your guy. They'd be out. But you would, you want the seat. You want what you believe is power. And so you're not going to have this person step down. And you would rather lose all of your integrity for that. And I really don't think that the Republican Party is looking at that. I'm like, I'm glad I'm not a Republican because that's embarrassing. Truly, mm -hmm. that's embarrassing. Yeah, um, you're hitting on a lot of things. And, and this forum, if anyone follows this forum, you know that we see it as a red-blue alliance. Um, I call them Dempublicans. <laughs> because even if you take away some of the social issues that they argue about all the time, whether it's um, what's been the latest in the past few years, CRT, and mm -hmm. yeah. they talk about LGBTQ, they, they argue those issues. But if you take away those things and you focus on economics and the war machine and everything else, big banks, big pharmaceutical companies, mm -hmm. censorship and stuff, they all agree with that stuff. They're all on board with everything else. And yeah. so, but they give people the impression that they're arguing all the time and it's a yeah. deep argument about the real issues. But if you examine it a lot, you realize that it comes back to money and corruption. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. It's It, it does come back to all about who's in your pocket, right? And what I'm grateful for is that there's no one in my pocket. And so I can speak freely 
mm-hmm. <laughs> and to people directly and say, okay, we all see this. We all know it's not good. My plan may not be perfect. You, If you have any suggestions, please let me know. But here's at least a plan and a path to move forward that is actually you know, realistic. It can be done. We just, unfortunately, we have a Congress in place that they've become emperors. They are not servants of the people. They've truly forgotten why they are there. Because once they get there, of course, everybody's throwing money at them to buy their vote. And it just shouldn't be that way. It, it really, truly shouldn't. I interviewed a candidate who's run for president yesterday as well. And I asked them the same question. How would you, knowing the corruption and the lobbying and how deep it is, what would be one of your first um, initiatives if you became president of the United States? What would you do to combat the influence of money in politics? Like, how do we change those types of things? I think we definitely have to start with the budget. So there is a budget, an administrative budget, where people get paid salaries. And we really need to look at lowering the salaries for our Congress and even for the presidency, for that matter. You should not go into politics to make money, but people do. And that's unfortunate because if that is your driving force of why you're here in this arena, then you're not a servant and you shouldn't be here. Um, The other matter is trading. They have insider trading within our government and they write bills to support corporations and they make money off of that. It shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. The lobbyists that we have, I understand why we have lobbyists. So you do have somebody there actually on your behalf petitioning to make sure that voices are heard that are not necessarily within the halls of Congress, right? Like every American can't be there. We saw how that turned out. It wasn't great. But the lobbyists are there to actually, you know, lobby on behalf of the American people. And they're not. They're lobbying on behalf of themselves or special interest groups. So again, it's getting away from what what we need as a country. And we need to just limit what lobbyists can and cannot do, right? If if you're here and, and your whole goal, I guess, is just to make money and to spread influence, let's just say for a big pharma, for example, and it's really not truly supporting the people then those are measures that we have to really step back and get away from. I know that was one thing with President Trump. He was like, yeah, we need to just get rid of the lobbyists altogether. It's like, well, we don't need to get rid of them. We just need to change how they can operate and how they can maneuver within the space that they're in. Because they are needed because there are there are you know things going on that congressmen don't know about. And those lobbyists actually bring those to light. If there's a cancer cluster in a small rural town, that congressman may not know about that, but the lobbyists can bring that to the congressman's attention and say, hey, can you assist us in this area? Because this is where we need assistance. And they can broker that. That's what they're there for. But like I said, it's become more of a money machine as opposed to an actual uh, representation machine, which is what it's supposed to be. But I guess my question is that would be, wouldn't lobbying just add another filter or another threshold that you have to break through 
um, to get things passed and to get things done because I was looking at some of the lobby money and it's crazy out of the top 20 lobbies. A lot of these are pharmaceutical companies, technological companies. Um, I think the chamber of commerce is the number one lobby in the country. But if you analyze it more, we were talking the other day about religion influence mm -hmm. in politics and just how the American Israel public affairs committee, APAC, which a lot of people know about, mm. they basically bought up both parties. And all you have to do is go to opensecrets.org and you can see wow. the, the issues around Israel. Israel gets representation in our government because that lobby funds so much money to all the co political campaigns. Okay. And so, and it's in, in some situations, if they don't buy out one side of the ruling class, they buy, buy out the other one. And it's absolutely crazy. It's almost like it's designed perfectly to where even though these lobbies are there to represent the people, each side has a block that's already sort of taken into consideration. And so it blocks everything at that point. And you can tell by the bills that get, you know, blocked and passed based on those lobbies because yeah. they've already bought off the politicians. Yeah, and that's, that's what I'm saying. Some of that has got to change. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, if you can represent without giving anybody any money, at all. That, that would somebody be ideal, wants to right? pay you to be there, that's one thing. But mm -hmm. you can't give anybody money to buy their vote. Because, right. you know, Thomas Jefferson, he wrote the Federalist 19, and he said, if we continue to have corporations become more powerful than the people, we're not going to be in a good place. You know, he definitely spoke to that. And that's what we need to remember. A lot of this, to your point, follow the money and you'll find the source. <laughs> yes. just follow the money and you know what why people are saying what they're saying why they're doing what they're doing you know even with Pfizer you know you will never really hear Donald Trump say a lot of negative things about Pfizer because they gave him a million dollars exactly you're, you're just not gonna hear it you know his hands are not necessarily tied however he's tied to the money mm -hmm. yeah and, and that's where I'm just saying changes need to be made. It'd be like, okay, you can lobby politicians, but you can't give them money. Now, if that if that change was made, then you can't buy off anybody, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to have fair and equal representation. And so that's what I'm saying. Lobbying isn't horrible. It's horrible when you can bribe people. That's, <laughs> that's what 100%. makes it horrible. Definitely, 100%. I totally agree with that. Um, before we go more into some of your stances on the issues, I did want to clarify. So the Redemption Party is here to stay. And would you be considered the founder of this party? Yes, I would be considered the founder. Yeah. That I still can't get over that about how the political parties are formed. And that does lead me into another realm of questioning because you obviously know a lot about um, law. And so how does that affect your ballot assets? Like where, where are you eligible to be on the ballot and what process goes into that to get your name on all 50 states? Yes. So depending on the state, typically they have a petition that needs to be signed to get you on the ballot. Um, for example, in Indiana, you actually need the sign off of nine different counties in order to get on the ballot for a federal election. There are some states where you can just pay money to get on the ballot. So it depends on the state that you're going into. Each state has their own set of regulations. But the majority of the states, 
it is by petition. So we have mm-hmm. a lot of work to do. We definitely <laughs> have a lot of groundwork to do. I'm trying to, you know, get that done with my team now. So. And so when you say that the redemption party, um, the principles that you allude to on your website, would you say that those will be the, the founding principles of this new political party, the redemption party? Yes. Yes. It is definitely around fiscal responsibility, um, limiting federal government by empowering local government and constitutional sovereignty. We've really gotten away from our constitution. It's interesting because the more we get away from it, the more people are bothered by it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when we stick to it, we can really see that there are amendments that need to be made, especially the 14th Amendment, where slavery is still within our constitution. It should be there. The prison system is actually, in some cases, a real estate investment trust. And those individuals can actually get government contracts to house human beings in there to do labor on a free basis because they're criminals, right? According to the 14th Amendment, done any criminal activity, then you can be used as a slave. They're not making any of that money, but the companies behind it that are actually profiting from it, they are. And so it's become like a backdoor profit center. There are actually, um, unfortunately, uh, incarceration facilities that keep their numbers up purposely so they can make that money. And as sick as that sounds, that's what we're doing in our government. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that needs to be addressed. And nobody wants to talk about it because it's not popular. But guess what? At the end of the day, it affects our communities. It affects families. It affects somebody's bottom line. And we have to really ask ourselves, are we really truly going to be a country that's okay with selling each other out down the road? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to be more of a country that says, okay, we want our people educated. We want them healthy. We want them thriving. We actually want a country that people can be proud of. Now, there are people that risk their lives to get here because they want freedom. And then sometimes those people get here and they're like, what are you doing? You're becoming what I was trying to escape from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that really needs to be addressed. I'm glad you brought that up about um, what you just alluded to it then immigration. Um, I love the, it'd be good. We probably have very different views on immigration, but I do want the audience to get your views on um, immigration because on your site, you seem to imply that our um, immigration system isn't strict enough, I guess, as far as um, when it pertains to illegal aliens, Americans. What would be your situation with that? Like you basically believe in just closed borders. Am am I given a right characterization of what your stance is? So what I would like is I want the borders closed for a specific period of time. Okay. So that we have the opportunity as the United States to really just clean things up, right? We just we need to we need to say, okay, we're stopping this. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> doors are closed right now. There's some things we need to clean up over here. So when you want to apply for citizenship, you have a cleaner path to citizenship. You're not sitting around waiting for 10 years for your citizenship. And you can actually have a formal pathway to become a citizen. Because what I don't want to see 
is what we see now with individuals just coming over the border, what's happening to these people? We're creating another slave class of individuals because they do not have their citizenship. We have no idea where they are. Are they actually going back for their court hearings once they get here? What are we really doing as a nation? And it's overwhelming, right? If they overwhelm the court system and they overwhelm the um, the other systems that we have in place for welfare, for housing, for all these other things, then what have we done to ourselves in trying to be charitable? We really have done ourselves a disservice. And we, it's really a slap in the face to those who have gone through all of the hardship to apply for citizenship and do it the right way. I mean, that's like standing in line and you're the third person in line and somebody from the very back comes and cuts in front of you. And you're like, wait a minute, I've been sitting here Mm -hmm. waiting in line for my turn and you're just going to cut in front of me and then get in and then they're going to question me wait a minute what's going on here and that's what we're really not looking at like i said it's a slap in the face to citizens that are here and those applying for citizenship and so what i want is i want a better path like similar to qatar where in qatar they have to be responsible for anybody that comes in their country my cousin actually lived there. So that's why I learned a little bit about it through her experience. And she let me know. She was like, yeah, they had to know if I was working, if I wasn't working, where I lived and all of these things in place. And even leaving, it was almost like a decommissioning process for her to come back to the United States. They had to make sure, okay, all of your paperwork's in alignment. You're no longer working at this place. You are going to be flying back. Here's everything in order. And then she came back to the United States. Now, I know it sounds like a really long process and like, how can we monitor everybody? You, you can have a monitoring system in place. What I'm saying is we've lost respect mm. for the citizenship process. And now people just see it as, well, I can have it regardless, even if I'm breaking the law. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you cannot break the law and then expect the law to protect you and, and demand it. As if you, you, you know, like it's expected, like, well, I'm a legal, you know, person over here. You're supposed to take care of me. No, absolutely not. You need to go to jail and you need to be deported. And I'm, I'm very hard line on it. 10 year plan, 10 years closed. That allows 10 years for those who applied for citizenship to get their citizenship. And that also allows 10 years to go back for people that did come here illegally. You're getting deported with your children, nobody's gonna be separated. And if your child was born here, depending on how you got here and your circumstances, your child could be denied citizenship. We need to really start looking at that because people think, okay, if I have a child over here, then I automatically can stay with my child because they're now a US citizenship. So I have somebody to tie myself to. It's like, no, and we're not gonna do amnesty again. We did amnesty because there were so many people that had come over across the border and they were like, okay, we're overwhelmed. There's nothing we can do. We can't send individuals back. So we did that. And then we have DACA recipients and the Supreme Court deemed that it was illegal the way it was done, mainly because it was an executive order that never became law. So you have all of these individuals here. You need to give them a chance to actually apply for citizenship so they can apply. And those that are going to get denied, because some people do get denied citizenship, they'll have to be deported and they'll have to start the process over again. But we really have to get to know 
we are going to protect our borders. We are going to protect our citizens. We are going to protect our sovereignty here in this country. And a lot of people aren't going to like the fact that, yeah, that's a hard line. That means you're going to have to get a lot of no's. I do not like seeing individuals that have an illegal status getting money and getting housing and getting clothes as if it's okay. Because if you teach somebody that it's okay to break the law, but the law will still protect you, what else are they going to think that it's okay to do here in our country? They have to assimilate to us. We do not assimilate to them. And um, I guess for my listeners, it's mm-hmm. that would, uh, for a lot of my listeners, they probably have a question mark in their head. <laughs> <laughs> but I bring, I have to bring different perspectives on. I can't just have people coming up regurgitate what my beliefs and stuff are. That's not yeah. the point of the forum at all. But um, I did have a few follow up questions to that, and then we can talk mm-hmm. about some other accompanying issues. Sure. A lot of countries, all countries deal with these problems. It's not like, um, so even to my friends that are more progressive-minded and liberal-minded, they make it seem as if, I mean, it sounds like a good idea in theory, like open borders. And me personally, I'm all about open borders, but the issue is that um, we there's just so many other systemic problems we have to where open borders is almost just a fantasy, I guess, until we even if you're for open borders, a lot of things will have to be already in place for that to be a reality, I think, to what people could go freely in and out of the country. I am for open borders, but I do understand people who have a concern about the border, you know, closing the border off. But I was going to ask, in regards to that, what do we do about the people who are already here illegal? And what do we do as, when you say border control, like, what do we do about the border? So, So how do we keep people from even coming in? Right. So there has to be measures put in place. So we do have border patrol at our border. And if they are given a command to do things a certain way, that's how they do them. Right now, they've been given the command. If people come to the border, you are to bust them in. You are to take them to these different locations. If you say, okay, our borders are now closed, that means when people get to the border, they're going to be turned away. You're, you cannot come into our country. You're not going to be flooding our country. And if we have to bring in military enforcement to enforce that, we will, because those are our borders. And so that's why I'm like, we need to really shut everything down. And I know a decade sounds like a long time, but like I said, it gives individuals that have applied for citizenship the chance to get citizenship. It actually allows us to look at our immigration system and look at the pitfalls where it's broken. Because just because you come here, and here's my thing, if you come here and you have no job skills, you do not have a, an education that can contribute to our society, why are you coming here to our country? That's my why. Why are you coming here? Because we are going to have to support you at the end of the day because you do not have the skill set to actually become a functioning member of our society. Whereas somebody who has gone to college and they have a formal education and they can get a job paying at least 50000 60000 a year starting, coming in, that's a person that's going to contribute to our society. So yeah, that person should be in the line ahead of you. Mm-hmm. And I know people will, well, that, that just doesn't seem fair. Look, it is. 
Because once we get it cleaned up and that person that doesn't have a formal education, we can say, hey, here's a space for you in a field where it doesn't require formal education, but we need individuals in this technical field mm. with your skill set that you have. You know, we don't do welding here where we need to start, you know, manufacturing our own metals. And so those, some of those positions don't necessarily require a college background, but they do require some education. And so we can get people to that education, but we need to have a process to get them there. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's not like I, I know people, she's in a phone book and she doesn't want anybody over here. I grew up in Orange County, California. Now, if a lot of people know about Orange County, California, I grew up in Garden Grove, right next door to Santa Ana. Santa Ana is like 95% Hispanic. Most of my friends were Hispanic. They were Asian. They were Samoan. So I didn't grow up around a lot of Black children. <laughs> I grew up around a lot of everybody else. So that is my melting pot. And I understand it. But what I'm saying is you cannot illegally bring people here and then say, okay, the law is going to support you. That's a mixed message and it's wrong because we need to be a country that has laws that are governing and people respect those laws and not disrespect those laws. Okay, segueing into something, talking about illegality, um, mm -hmm. there, there's a certain plant that's illegal right now. It's called marijuana, cannabis, to sort of show the nuance in your um, thought process because I was looking at your site at first and I don't like to judge people just based on, I have to look at all the views. I'm like, no, you can't really put her in a category because you have lots of different views on things. And it's not just what people think, well, oh, if she has that view about immigration. She's probably going to have this view. But that's not the case at all. You actually have um, a pretty open stance about marijuana. You believe it should be legal. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It should be because it can be used for medicinal purposes. I know everybody just thinks, you know, people are just going to be sitting around getting baked and doing all these things. <laughs> we, we have to look at uh, the history of this country, right? Let's look at alcohol. For example, there was a time when there was moonshine and there was a time where alcohol was illegal and it was smuggled in different places and it was on the black market. But once it became legal, it became profitable. You know, and then we have our whiskeys and our champagnes and cognacs and, and different things of that matter. Now, downside, there are some people that have addictive personalities and they have gotten addicted to alcohol. They have died of alcohol poisoning. There have been DUIs for people driving drunk. But let me ask you, did we make alcohol illegal? No, we did not. What it did was it actually took away that rebelliousness when it was made legal and then people it was like well it's legal now it's almost like well it's no fun to sneak it in because we can't be sneaky about it and it would be the same way with marijuana and as in and even in this you know certain states where it's legal now you can see that that you don't have a rising crime in those particular areas now because it is still illegal at the federal level you still have that movement of people being illegal in the background and and pushing forward different things unfortunately a lot of those are arrests and like i was speaking to before we need to have so many people in the prison system that shouldn't be there because 
they've been, you know, basically they're in jail for petty crimes. And some of those petty crimes do revolve around marijuana, um, you know, being caught with the drug on them at the time, because again, it's illegal at the federal level and it just needs to be legalized. People, again, use it for medicinal purposes. And I think Big Pharma is afraid of that as well. So they're lobbying against that <laughs> because if people can actually grow it in their backyard and use it to protect themselves, what good is a pharmaceutical company anymore? And that's mm-hmm. where I say, yeah, people need to have that ability to grow it in the backyard. Now, my problem with HR 3617 is the fact that they want to govern governize it right? They want to make it legal, but at the same time, they want to change the wording around it. And then they want to have only certain people be able to grow it. I'm like, no. Okay. So this is what the government is horrible at, right? Whenever they get their hands involved in anything and there's too much regulation from our government, especially, you know, people end up with cancer and and, and dying, you know what I'm saying? We see the commercials at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, sometimes when we're up at this law firm, if you suffered from this. So what I want is I want it legalized and I want people to have the ability to grow it in their backyard. Um, If anybody's growing anything that's very fumigating, please keep that in your greenhouse because your neighbors don't want to smell it. But (laughs) for the most part, it should be a plant like anything. Like I grow kale in my backyard. Somebody should be able to grow cannabis in their backyard Mm -hmm. and utilize it the way they see fit because like I said, not everybody's using it to get high. There are some people that have cancer. There are some people that have other issues going on in their life and it actually helps them. And so they don't have to take pain medication. So that that's, you know, my big thing with it. Now, to your point, a lot of people go, really? That's an extreme view. It is. No, I but, love that. I love that extreme. It's just and that's and that's the thing. We can agree to disagree. Um, you have your views on the border, and that's perfectly acceptable. And this is perfectly acceptable. Like that's the way it should be, like open dialogue, and you actually get to know where the person stands. Um, the the funny thing about cannabis is I live in the state of Tennessee, I live outside of Nashville, and hemp is legal in Tennessee now. Okay. And you see all these dispensaries, like all these you basically can buy edibles on every block. Like I have a couple down the street for me, like three or four of them. You can go in and buy edible and all types of products. And so I'm saying to myself, okay, so why don't they just legalize everything at this point? You know, just legalize it because um, the smell of hemp and cannabis aren't even, you can't even tell a difference. Yeah. And so when the cop pulls you over, I mean, and you're smoking hemp, isn't that just like wasting their time? Because if it has the same smell and stuff anyway, I mean, what's the point of criminalizing it at that point? Um, but the scheduling is a big issue with, with marijuana. It's still considered a, a heavy drug and not a yes. plant. And yes. so what would you do to change that? Well, you would have to go to Title 10 and remove the, it from that classification of narcotics. That's all it takes. Mm-hmm. I know it's as simple as that sounds. That is it. It just needs to be removed as a classified narcotic because it's not. Mm-hmm. I can't, I, I shouldn't say I can't grow cocaine because they do grow cocaine, right? They do grow heroin from the poppy seed. It's how it's actually transformed. But marijuana isn't a narcotic. Mm-hmm. 
that's that's the that's the main difference and 100%. so removing it from that status removes everything else associated with it because it's class once it's classified there it's associated with all of the laws and everything all the repercussions of actually having it you know as a drug in your possession but once you remove it from that classification that's it it goes away and so we really need to just remember when it comes to a substance like that that it is a naturally grown substance that can be ingested and it doesn't necessarily have to be ingested to alter your physical state mm-hmm. so you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but the worst thing that usually happens with people that smoke marijuana is they want to eat and they want to sleep. It doesn't really get too many people paranoid unless that, and it's very rare cases that that happens. My main concern is I do not want the government getting involved, you know, and working with maybe companies like Monsanto, which mm-hmm. Bear now owns, and putting GMOs in it and making it what it shouldn't be. That's my concern. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, I totally agree with that sentiment. And just to give a testimonial to people who are skeptical about marijuana and cannabis, and it's not for everyone, but I know that I wasn't really a, a smoker, I guess you could say. Like, I knew people who did it, obviously. But it's really probably the reason why I finished my dissertation and got my PhD last year, mm-hmm. um, because it lowered my anxiety levels. I could not write and going to my writing sessions at Starbucks or Panera or whatever, because I was just too scared to write. Like I, the, the process of getting my PhD was such a scary thought for me. And so when I took an edible or, or smoked, I was able to get work done in batches and it actually helped me finish. And so it does have scientific benefits and medicinal benefits. People are lying if they say that it doesn't. It definitely has, at least for me, it, it probably saved my career. Wow. Um, so, so I give it a lot of credit and like, I give that a big, um, positive dedication as yeah. far as, um, your views on, we've talked a little bit, you talked about the 14th amendment, um, changing that, um, that kind of goes into the anti-black hate crime bill. Is that, is that different from the 14th amendment or is that, or is that part of that? It is, it'll be part of it. So The anti-Black hate crime bill is actually a part of the Reparations Act. And so just like we have the Federal Reserve Act, I want a Reparations Act that will include an anti-Black hate crime bill, which will include amending the 14th Amendment to remove slavery from Mm -hmm. our Constitution and go through our Constitution and see if there are any other areas that could imply slavery still be enacted today that mm-hmm. reparations act is where i really want to be inclusive of that so i want to say it gives a blanket and a covering for that and and removes it yes you stress that a lot you also have um a reparations platform mm-hmm. um i i've, I've yet to meet because I talked to a lot of people and I know they talked about Miriam Williamson left and right the last presidential election because they said she had a reparations platform. Uh, but me personally, I'm not going to get into her. Um, I'm not a fan of Miriam Williamson for a lot of reasons. But what we're 
Hashaki Nichols reparations platform be? Like, what would yours look like? Um, as far as how do we get to reparations? What do those look like financially, educationally? Like, wh what are reparations to you? Okay, so for me, repar reparations is mending a promise that was broken. So, you know, we definitely, you know, looking at 40 acres and a mule, I'm 51 years old. You know, I remember when uh, a lot of conscious rappers at the time I was in high school, they were mm -hmm. talking about reparations and, you know, Spike Lee is also talking about 40 acres and a mule. And at the time, you know, being so young, I was like, okay, whatever. But as I got older, I was like, oh, okay, now this is starting to make sense mm -hmm. because what people don't see is they don't see the disconnect and the wealth gap that happened because that promise wasn't kept. And furthermore, there were actual times in our history where former slaves were actually building communities and those communities were burned down, unfortunately. And the land didn't go to the descendants of those slaves they actually went back to the states and then individuals were able to buy that land on pennies on the dollar and benefit from that land. So what people really don't see are some of the nuances and some of the deep rooted issues in our country. So that's why I said, I want a reparations act. I don't want to just say, okay, we're just going to do reparations, right? Because it is more than just financial. It's about healing. It is actually about setting things right. It's about having an anti-Black hate crime bill in place. We do not have one. Now we do have the Emmett Till bill, but it doesn't refer to Black people in that bill at mm -hmm. all. If you actually read the bill, it, does, it doesn't specifically point us out. Like you, can, there, you can't lynch anybody, but you specifically cannot lynch these people because in the past this has happened to them. It does not say that. We are not outlined. There's no protections. No. And so that's why I said we have to have an anti-Black hate crime bill. We have an anti-Asian hate crime bill. We've got we've got it for every other class of individual within our country, but we don't have it for the people that help build this country. Mm -hmm. Why not? You know, yeah. we really need to start asking that question. Why not? Because people keep saying, well, why do you need it? Well, why won't, why don't we have it? Why mm -hmm. don't we have it? We need it at this point. And I'm very grateful for all of our individuals, and I will say freedmen and um, foundational Black Americans and African Americans and Black individuals that have, you know, pulled themselves up by the bootstraps where there were no boots with their bare feet and have attained the wealth that they've attained. But how much further would we be if we didn't have Roswell, if we didn't have Okoye, Florida? If we didn't have Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'm just mentioning those three, there are more than that that happened. Roswell, yeah. But where would we be as a race of people in this country had those things not happened? Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm looking at reparations. And yes, it's it's going to be a very high dollar amount. I would definitely recommend people reading from here to equality because the individuals that wrote that book they actually pinpointed a lot of the financial burden that came out of it and the benefits that other people benefited from. So I would look to them to, you know, be my source seekers in the study. You know, we have mm -hmm. HR 40 
which is in place right now. And they were like, we need to do a study. I'm like, no, just read this book and you're good. Exactly. They've I was going to bring work. up HR 40. <laughs> They've yeah. done all the work, you know? So when, and after reading it, I was like, you know what, if we had a reparations act and we put in the anti-black hate crime bill and we used the figures just that they had thought in that book, I said, we would actually be able to come up with a frame of education for individuals, financial education. So people aren't just, we're just going to give you money and you're just going to spend it willy nilly. No, it's lineage based. You mm -hmm. have to actually show that you were, you know, a descendant of a former slave. You know, my, I'm very grateful to my dad. He traced my lineage back 150 years. So I know the actual family that owned my family. And you're going to have to come up with that. Not everybody's going to get a check out of this. And I know that might make people sad, but here's the benefit. What you're going to get is you're going to get an injection in the economy that will benefit other individuals. If we have a Freeman Bank in place, which is also a part of that Reparations Act, there will be a place for that money. I also want a stock exchange instrument based off of that bank. So there will be a instrument generationally that freed Black Americans and freedmen, foundational Black Americans, sorry, and freedmen will be able to benefit from, but other people will be able to benefit from it also. And an instrument on the stock exchange that cannot be tampered with, right? We have tampering. <laughs> in our stock exchange where people will short the market, lower mm -hmm. the stock. And no, it will be an organic stock. And, and I know a lot of people say, well, how can you do that? Because you can't set up instruments to basically be established in a particular way with the stock exchange. And so I'm looking at more than just throwing money at this. This isn't about that. This is about actual repair. This is about actually establishing the freedmen and freedmen does exist if you look it up it's in our constitution there was a freedmen act that was supposed to be set in place after the emancipation proclamation however mm -hmm. at that time president johnson did not want it so there were those in congress trying to assist former slaves in establishing them but out of it we did still get the freedmen bank we still did get certain things but Where's the Freedman Bank now? Oh, I'm sorry. It was burned down once it became successful. Why? Mm -hmm. Stop telling people you're important to us and we believe in you. Okay, thank you. Great. But my history says that it was burned down at a certain time. So if it was burned down at a certain time, why hasn't it been reestablished? And why do you call me crazy when I want to reestablish it? Mm -hmm. Don't do that. <laughs> so yeah. yeah that's that's so many thoughts that go through my head when you explain some of this stuff and um me personally like i don't have a lot of hope in electoral politics but these ideas aren't brought up um as options and i'm glad that you're on here bringing these things up as options and you actually have a plan for reparations um i just feel like and i'm talking to my black listeners and, and people who are participating in the voting process we have to have demands. Like, I don't care what side of the spectrum you're on, like this left, right stuff. I don't care anymore about that. Um, I am a leftist, yes. I am, I'm a, a left libertarian. I'm libertarian about certain things, but 
I'm definitely a leftist um, in, in lots of different ways. We don't have to go into them. But regardless of if you're more conservative or whatever, if you're more liberal, you have to have demands in place. If these politicians are not meeting your demands, stop voting for them. And the, the, that platform is never going to be compatible to yours because you you keep supporting them. They don't have a reason to listen to your voice because you just keep giving them your votes. And they're not taking any of your views into consideration. How long are we going to keep doing this? A hundred more years? And then we move the needle a little bit? No, we need things done now. Um, the incrementalism has to die. And and that's what both parties survive on is incrementalism, giving you the impression that things are changing. But they do it at such a slow pace that when we're all gone and dead, we're not going to see the benefit of it. Our grandkids aren't going to see the benefit of it. So we really have to start thinking like that, making voting more urgent and stop doing this. Oh, you know, it's such a privilege to vote, but we need to be able to do something with the votes. Like, what's that changing? Yeah, very, very true. Very true. I was telling my husband the other day when we were talking, I said, you know, politicians run on problems because as long as there is a problem, you know, that they know they can't solve, they can run on it continually and then say, well, you know, we tried to get to it, but we were blocked by this party or this happened or that happening. You just keep making excuses and you keep kicking that can down the road. And to your point, we're not holding their feet to the fire and saying, okay, you know, if you don't get this done next term, we're not voting for you, period. You will not get our vote. And if politicians actually believed that and knew that and they, and they started not getting back into office, they'd be like, okay, we need to start doing our job. Yes, because that's why we send you there. We don't <laughs> see you there to sit there and, and make money from corporations and, you know, have the fancy dinners and lunches and fly all over the place and, and work less than a year, by the way, because they do get breaks in between. There are back in, you know, in their states, but they're not necessarily working. If they're not in Washington, they're not working. They are politicking, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're out there. Right. You know what I'm saying? They're out there still amongst their constituents trying to make sure, hey, I've got your vote. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm doing this. And they were getting their donors and all that other good stuff. But are you really doing your job? Mm-hmm. You know, when you start holding people's feet to the fire and say, okay, you, you don't have our vote. And to your point, unfortunately, as the African-American community, we have been conditioned. You have to vote Democrat because the Republicans are racist and they're not going to do anything for you, but we'll get everything done for you. And like, you know, I keep referring to my husband because we have all these political conversations, but he says, you know, a lot of times the Democrats will overpromise and underdeliver, and mm-hmm. And those are true of even both parties. They keep making all these grandiose ideas, but just look at what we have right now as a law. That's why I put the laws on my website. And I was like, look, we already have something in place. We just need to make a couple of tweaks to it and get it passed through. And then Mm -hmm. we can get what we want, but it's the people demanding from our politicians. You're gonna give us what we want or you're out of here. And we have that power as a people and we need to remember that with our vote and it's an absolute disgrace and travesty that the occupier in chief right now got 80 percent of black people to vote for him i mean just absolutely is sickening and i don't care what ideology you follow i mean you're basically a walking contradiction if you think that joe biden is a pro-black president none of them are none of them have been um margaret kimberly's book prejudicial Black American the Presidents is a must read to sort of go into the history of how all these presidents have been anti-Black in their legislation and their rhetoric. 
um, Joe Biden's rhetoric and Trump's rhetoric has those racist undertones, but this person in office now speaking to some of the issues that we've discussed, I mean, the drug war, the carceral state, it, he's a big contributor to that. Like the, the crime bill is obviously one of the most notable examples of that, but we have to stop supporting people like that. Stop saying the ifs and the buts. No, he's damaged the black population in this country and people supporting that sentiment, you, that's an anti-black sentiment. So whether they're saying things or not, the, the laws in place are anti-black. And so that's the way we have to look at it and, and stop trying to cover for Democrats, Republicans. I mean, it's, it's racist all at the end of the day. They use that term so much racism, racist. Yeah, these are racist policies. So hold their feet to the fire and stop supporting them. Yeah, yeah. Like, like we were saying earlier before we got on camera, it's like people have gotten used to being in an abusive relationship with their government. Whenever you have to keep making excuses for what somebody's not doing and why they are not, um, not necessarily loving you, but at least respecting you, you're in an abusive relationship. You truly, truly are. And, and that's where we've been at for a long time with our government. And it, it's something that needs to stop. It just needs to end. But as people, we need to wake up to it. Like, does anybody really want to admit to being abused? <laughs> no. But at that point, if you don't, then you're a part of it and you're okay with being in a cult, right? And I don't think anybody wants to be there either. You, you, you just, there comes a point in time where you just have to say, okay, reality is what it is. We're in an abusive relationship with our government. That needs to stop. We need to hold their feet to the fire. We need to start putting people in office that actually care. And we also need to make sure that when those people are there, that we put measures in place to make it undesirable to be in the government. And what I mean by that is you're not going to get a nice little beefy salary <laughs> to be in the government. You know what I'm saying? You, you're not. You're not going to use the government as a way to support your life. That's not what you're there for. You're there to serve the people. So my opinion, it's like, no, nobody in Congress should be paid over 60000 a year. People would be like, oh, oh my gosh, how am I going to live? Yeah, figure it out. <laughs> Everybody right. else does. But, but guess what? Everybody but else does. They right? have, figure it out. But they have other but, things that we don't have. They have um, efficient health care. Mm -hmm. And that's um, one thing I want to talk to you before we conclude. Do you have about 15 more minutes possibly? Sure. Okay. Because I did want to touch on your stances on healthcare, and um, do you believe in a universal healthcare system, a single payer system? How would your system look if you were president of the United States? Yes. What I would like to see with our healthcare system is I want to see it more at the state level, right? I want to see a healthcare system that is at the state level, not necessarily from the federal level in the way it functions we can support financially from the federal level, but allow the states to give their citizens health care that's paid for. So in the state of Georgia, for example, we have a Medicare, Medicaid program. I would like to see that Medicaid program expanded to individuals to give them a third option. So let's say if I'm working in a fast food restaurant where I am not eligible for healthcare there, but I can get it through my state, there's state funding there for that healthcare. Or if I work for a corporation and they have a healthcare package, but I'm like, you know what? 
financially, it makes more sense for me to actually use the state run healthcare as opposed to the one at the corporate level, they have that option. And definitely mm-hmm. just here in the state of Georgia, we need to stop closing down a lot of our hospitals. We need to find out like, why aren't we funding hospitals in these rural areas that are trauma care, you know, wound centers? Like, what are we doing? But again, if the funding is there for the state, then the state can function as it needs to for their citizens. Because at the federal level, the way it is right now, a lot of it is being used as a piggy bank, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, our taxes go there, but when we want something done, we'll pull money and resources from it. And that is is not what we need. Um, So a lot of people, then they look at universal health care, they, you know, think about places like Canada and, you know, different countries where it's a caste system, right? So obviously the people that make the more money, they're going to have a better, you know, healthcare system. And that's what we don't want. What we need, like I said, at the state level, we have amazing healthcare in this country. It's become affordable because we have insurance companies, because those insurance companies are getting funded by the federal government. They don't necessarily need your money, but they need some competition, right? Which Mm -hmm. is what they don't have. I want to see the relationship get back to the patient and the doctor without the insurance company getting in the way. Okay. And if we can have expanded Medicaid in states, then it gets back to that relationship because all the Medicaid is doing is paying the doctor's bill. They're not getting in the way of the patient-doctor relationship. So if the doctor says, okay, this is the procedure that you need done. These are the medications that you need to have. The funding is there. Mm-hmm. And they're not having to go through an insurance company that says, well, that medication is no longer on the list of medications that you can take. Well, you're not a doctor. And this mm-hmm. is what the doctor's prescribing. So how did you get involved in my health care? Mm-hmm. And so that's what we really need to look at taking out. So I'm looking, you know, not necessarily as an overhaul, but an adjustment. Because mm-hmm. then these insurance companies will actually have to compete with the states for customers for healthcare and really look at aligning to the needs of the patient and get out of being a buffer to collect money mm-hmm. for their own company. Cause they're not even collecting money for the doctors. They're collecting money for their own company. So yeah, I've I haven't heard um, too much talk about this stance on healthcare. So that's interesting. Um I have to look into that more. Yeah. Um would that still function would it be just like a universal state healthcare system? Is that basically what it would be? Well, each state would function differently, right? Each so state. I live here in Georgia, but I have different needs to somebody that may live in Illinois or somebody might live in New York mm-hmm. or somebody that might live in California. So it would all look different. But what I would like to see is federal funds given to the states and let the states do the work. I guess. As opposed to the federal government governing how healthcare should work. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> because like I said, everybody has different needs and different value systems in their state. And, you know, for some people they're like, why well, can't move? If, you know, we'll talk about those things a little bit more further down the road, but if you're in a state where you're not aligned with their values, you may look at wanting to be in another state because each state has the constitution and they're able to carry it out according to their state. You'd be surprised at what states do. 
<laughs> make you lose your hair a little bit on, on certain things, but the federal government is there to support. And that's what we need to remember. The federal government is there to assist the states, not to lord it over them. Mm-hmm. I was um I was looking at some of your stances on um gun safety. I like mm-hmm. how you say gun safety and not gun control. Like mm-hmm. I it definitely makes a difference. The wordage and the verbiage makes a big difference. Yeah. And um I wanted to get your idea on how that looks um in your vision as far as because we have so many gun laws on the books. And they're not solving any of these mass shootings or anything like that. It's not doing anything whatsoever. And I also want to tie this into the policing aspect. Your stance on um, do we need to defund the police? Because I know that's a loaded word. Mm-hmm. But my vision of that would be simply um, there's such, such an over-policing of Black neighborhoods, of more disenfranchised neighborhoods. And people who live in these cookie-cutter neighborhoods don't complain about the police because they're not being harassed by them. But mm-hmm. in neighborhoods that are under that constant harassment, there's a need for people to maybe they feel like they're over-policed. So yeah. those two issues in particular. Right. So when referring to gun safety, it's all about gun education. And that's what we've gotten away from. People really do not have respect for guns and really understanding how they operate, how they function, why we have them, why we need to keep, you know, bullets maybe in a separate container from a lockbox, why, you know, certain people want to have, you know, 50 guns, do they need them? And so getting back to gun education and really understanding and having respect for guns, children and adults, to me would get us at least back in a better mindset of why we have our guns, why we have the Second Amendment. We mainly have the Second Amendment in place. So we, if our government decided to become tyrannical, we could defend ourselves as citizens. And we need to remember that. So that's why, you know, a lot of times you'll see certain people that are gun lobbyists or activists, they'll say, no, we don't want our guns taken away because they're going back to that without saying it. They're going back to that stance. We do not want to be caught flat-footed with our government because there are other countries that don't have guns and their government runs roughshod on them. Australia being one of them. They, you know, don't have, their citizens don't have guns and they can, you know, the police can kind of do whatever they want to to their citizens and they do. Mm. And that's what we don't want. Now to further that, we still need to do further education with our policing system. And I've, you know, gotten to talk to a few chief of police as I've been campaigning and one in College Park here where I live in Georgia, they are developing a program that will help with mental issue calls, right? Because they need a team and a division that can handle those calls because you don't want to send a police officer who may be used to going to a criminal call right, to a situation where you have a mental health issue. Because the mm-hmm. mental health issue, they may get out of control. It's like that person shouldn't be shot because they're having a manic episode. They need to be handled differently. And so that's where we need to really work with the police departments 
in the education. And I want to say it's actually an expansion of our police in the sense of we need to look at getting divisions to assist where we need them. We may have a troubled youth, right? That's not necessarily a criminal and they just need somebody to talk with them. Do we have a division right now in our police department that exists? Or are we just sending out police officers with guns and with pepper spray and with tasers to you know, put people underfoot as opposed to talking through the issue if they're able to do that. If that person doesn't have a weapon, yeah, you have the ability to actually communicate with them and talk them down and get a better understanding and have those community um, you know, policies in place. And so that's what policing is starting to look like to me and talking with, especially with that chief of police where officers, they want to do these things, but it's how do they maneuver the funding to do them? Because it's different. Our world is a little bit different now. We're actually looking at getting away from just sending a police officer out with a gun. We're looking at, okay, we need people, we need actual counselors and crisis counselors on the ground mm -hmm. in, in certain situations. So that's what we need to look at. So I'm not looking at necessarily defunding the police. I'm looking at, okay, what can we do with the resources that you already have and make some adjustments in mm -hmm. what you can do within your departments? Because there, there may be people that are very good community officers that can get into the community and start building that relationship and that trust with the community. So when things are going wrong, they know they have the people in the community, they know they have a trusted officer that they can call. They know that they can trust their police department. Now to your second question about how it's so disparaging in certain areas as opposed to others, it depends on the state. It depends on where you are. You know, I lived in Irvine, California for a while and Irvine, California, I think for a long time, was like one of the top 10 safest cities to live in. Well, part of that is because they have Big Brother. They have all the cameras everywhere. If an accident happens, it's usually cleaned up within 10, 15 minutes, oil spill, glass and all. That's just how that city runs. And you think, well, how can they run it that way and efficiently? Well, they almost have, I want to say their police per capita is like a one to five ratio of citizens. <laughs> <laughs> so for every one officer that officer is only taking care of five people mm. that's intense right <laughs> that's an intense number of officers however they have a set community and their community is based on the number of people that live there they also have cameras everywhere mm. and you would never feel threatened by those cameras because those cameras are actually there to keep you safe so if they see something that's kind of out of line the police are already showing up before anything goes down in certain areas of Irvine <laughs> and so I enjoyed living there because I felt very very safe there especially I was at the time I was a single mom I had two young girls and I wasn't scared if they were walking home at seven eight o'clock at night with their friends because I knew the police were looking out for them but not every community is like that. And there are those communities where we have bad actors that are police officers that are unfortunately killing individuals or putting individuals underfoot. I actually saw a video 
last week where there was a man, he had a seizure mm. in a drive through And instead of the police assessing what happened, and it's interesting because the ambulance was called, but police showed up. So I'm not sure how that happened, but in the interim, this man, he woke up, he didn't know where he was. And of course, you know, you have fight or flight. If, if you wake up in an awkward situation, they were tasing this man who had a seizure and he needed medical attention. And instead of him getting that, he was constantly tased. He was treated like a, a it was egregious to even watch the video. It was very sad. And then after the fact, you know, the police are standing around walking around like, yeah, we had to do this. And I was like, really? You were dealing with an individual who could have died mm. in their car. They could have died because you tased them. Like, thank goodness he's not dead. And he's actually suing the police department for their actions. But again, did the police act in the best way to the situation going on? They did not in this circumstance. And unfortunately, that's more so the case in the studies in a lot of black and brown neighborhoods, <laughs> unfortunately, mm -hmm. that we see. Now, if, it, if it's happening in white neighborhoods, maybe we're not seeing it. But a lot of what's being caught on camera that we see in the news and on social media, it's unfortunately in, uh, in areas where police, unfortunately, they kind of use it as a, I don't want to say it as a ways to get that, their frustration. Like I said, again, there are those that are bad actors and they make other police officers look bad. I have relatives that have been a sheriff and, and police now. And, you know, the community that they're in, everybody loves them. You know, I mentioned, if I go back home to South Bend, I'll be like, oh yeah, the, you know, my cousin so-and-so, they're like, oh yeah, he's crazy, he's wonderful. Like, <laughs> I want to hear that about all police officers, right? And I'm sure other police do too, but it's looking at, okay, what kind of counseling are police officers getting? Are they really getting what they need as far as psychological evaluations? I had an idea years ago. I was like, well, never mayor of the city. This is what I do with my police. I'd make sure that, you know, they would have a extended time off a few times a year, but within that time off that they would get a psychological evaluation to make mm. sure that they were still okay to function on the streets because we do have a heavy task for them. I don't think it's easy if you have to go out and you may have to shoot somebody and then you just have to sit down and write a report about it. Like, hold on. You just had a very traumatic experience and I do not expect you to operate like a robot. You are a human being. Like, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Is everything all right with you? Because if we're not making sure that everything are all right with our police officers that we're sending back out on the streets, this is where we see the breakdown. This is where we see the aggression. This is where we see people acting in fear as opposed to really policing and making sure that no one comes in harm's way. It's like, it's your job as a police officer to keep people out of harm's way. It's not your job as a police officer when everybody sees you coming to go, oh my gosh, we might get killed because the police are showing you. That's mm -hmm. not the mindset that we should be in. And you said a lot there, and I was thinking about when you talked about all the surveillance in Irvine. Yeah. That is such a hard concept for me to wrap around. I feel like this is, I mean, most countries are surveilled, I mean, obviously. Mm -hmm. And the citizens in this country have a serious problem with um, 
just the way these intelligence agencies operate and and if you are too outspoken, like the government will basically handle you accordingly. Like I, that, those things absolutely scare me like crazy, especially when you talk about free speech and and just like what are you able to get away with these days without the government viewing you as a threat? You know, when you you're just simply speaking. Right. But um, I was thinking about the surveillance aspect of police, and um, we see a lot of egregious behavior, like you said, um, coming from police um, units. So that leads to my question, are you for ending qualified immunity? Because the police union is one of the strongest unions in the country. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's a strong, strong lobby. And there are issues that happen, not just with black communities, just all over the place there. There's a situation in Gastonia, North Carolina with a homeless vet. And the police just absolutely just going crazy um, on this vet. Um, and I don't think that they're isolated incidents. See, I think they happen. Um, all of them don't get put on television. Right. But it's, this is a big country. So we obviously can't document every situation of police brutality. But um, I, I'm at a point now where I just think that we need to um, stop giving so much protection to the police. Like, what's your view on that? And you're talking about, I want to, what is it again? I didn't Qual Qualified immunity. Qualified it's, immunity. It's one yes. of the issues that, the Libertarian Party and the Green Party agree with like a lot of um, I guess I won't, I don't want to call them fringe views because I mean Libertarian Party is a pretty big party in the country. The Green Party is not as big, but a lot of people are starting to have I won't call it anti-police sentiment, but mm -hmm. that particular thing is something we need to stop protecting the police unions and mm -hmm. and maybe they won't be so comfortable like abusing the citizens. Yeah, I think um, with qualified immunity, that is something that we really need to sunset because people are using it as an excuse to justify their behavior. Mm -hmm. And that, again, goes back to the training. Are we training police officers to support the community or are they being trained to just gun people down? There, there, there's a mindset there. And so mm -hmm. what, what, what are we producing right out of our police academies? Because unfortunately with that qualified immunity, it's allowing a certain level of criminal behavior at the end of the day. And like I said, that is something we need to sunset. Now, is there something that we could replace it with? Yeah, we already have it. It's called a judicial system. And you, as an officer of the law, actually have a higher fiduciary standard of care because you carry a weapon, because you do have the authority, um, you know, in a situation where if your life was threatened, that you have to use, you know, physical force, whether that's with a gun or with a taser or with pepper spray or whatever you're using. But unfortunately, with qualified immunity, it's been abused for individuals that know, well, if I shoot this person and they die, I, I can just write a report and make it look like, make it look like I was in danger so I can get away with it. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to get away from. That's why I said it needs to be a sunset clause replaced by something else to make sure that, you know, our police officers are kept in order and not looking at something that bails out the bad cops, if that makes sense. 
No, I definitely, I, I believe we could definitely work some things out. Like if if, <laughs> if we were in the actual um, Congress working together, like I could work across Like We don't have, I think, the same view, but we have enough of um, commonality to where we could definitely get things done. I mean, that's, yeah. that's to me, a very simple measure. It, like you were saying before, there was something you referred to, the scheduling of marijuana. It just takes one. Why isn't that getting done? Just something that's so simple, something, things that we can do immediately, but they're not getting done. These are the types of things that are very frustrating to everyday people, but they're also things that people aren't demanding of their politicians to solve. Because if it's that easy to do and they're still not doing it, then they're not taking you into consideration again. And these are the types of things that need to be done. And they have immediate effects because, like you said, that behavior, there will be a big change in policing, I think, if that, if those protections weren't in place. Yeah, no, they would have a lot more respect for what they do, right? And I think even in a community, we would have more respect for them because we would know what they would be allowed to do and not to do you know I was actually watching a video on I think it was Austin Texas and I don't know what was going on but all I just I remember seeing a sheriff's uh, vehicle or police vehicle backing up because the crowd was coming after them and I was like okay where did we lose the respect for the officers because they were called there for a reason there was a citizen that was like hey some things are out of control can you come help and they had to retreat because of the amount of people coming back towards them oh, it's God. like okay citizens you can't on one hand be like that's it we're getting rid of the police but then you call them because you need them like we need to come to a middle ground we need to get some respect back because not every officer is a bad officer right every citizen isn't a bad citizen and so that's what we need to get out of the us them mentality we are all american citizens here that live in this country and we need to work together to make it a decent country is everybody gonna be you know pristine citizen and not steal no that's fine we have measures in place for that right mm -hmm. we we have measures in place but we still have to get back to the respect and and that's what's been completely eroded no one has respect for each other anymore you don't have respect for their language where they live, <laughs> what they do, but you want them to respect you, but you don't want to give that respect. And we have to get back to that in this country. Before I conclude, I did want to get, that was some stuff I saw on your site about education. <laughs> and I was, um, we, I alluded to earlier CRT and we, we're not going to get into the culture <laughs> war stuff. We actually, I just had an episode episode um i believe it's 24 with matt nelson he came on and he has a new book called the color of civics due to be released july the first and we talked about the misconceptions like i'm a, I'm a professor and mm -hmm. so the stuff that people are arguing about in congress these people obviously don't teach because i've never seen that stuff in the classrooms before like teaching um basically i believe in autonomy for the teacher but i don't teach the lower levels i teach um college level but the stuff I teach, people respect me for it because even though we may have different views about it, I'm teaching from my experiences and I'm not indoctrinating the students. I'm teaching right. them as a black person in this country mm -hmm. about a plethora of issues. And if they have questions, I answer those questions and we have a discussion. But I'm not indoctrinating them 
at all. I don't even know how that comes into the equation when people say stuff like that. But um, isn't the point of education is to open people's minds and just learn from each other? Yeah. And it shouldn't be like, oh, you can teach about this, but you can't teach about this. I'm like, isn't that the, like, don't we need to negotiate that, you know, in the first place? Like, what yeah. are your views on um, educational content, I guess, in our um, U.S. system? And what are your overall overall views as far as like funding teachers and, and local mm-hmm. state level? Yeah. Yeah, well, definitely with education, it needs to be an open book. And unfortunately, in this country, we have an ugly past. And nobody really wants to talk about it because they're afraid of people getting upset. Don't be afraid of people's feelings because of what they learn. But once they learn it, it has to be learned with the understanding, yes, these things occurred in the past. The person next to you did not do this. Check your feelings. (laughs) <laughs> check your feelings you know then just check your feelings because what you need to understand is if this happened once it can happen again if we do not show you what happened we may not have all of the whys we may just have the information right mm-hmm. but we need to educate our children so that they understand okay these things happened in our past these are gaps in our history we're you know there were from here, you know, to quality. I like the book. I'm going to refer to it again. Yeah, yeah, I'll write um, it down. But what it talked about was there was a point in our history where it certain things were washed out of slavery because they did not want to be viewed as the bad guy. The Confederate Army didn't want to be viewed as bad people. Um, and those people that were descendants of those who were in the Confederate Army, they did not want to be viewed as evil. And I'm not saying they are evil. There were evil things that happened, okay? And there were atrocities that happened. And we need to know what happened. And we don't need to go back in our history and try to fluff it up and make it seem like, yeah, it was kind of bad, but we don't need to talk about that. Let's just talk about how happy people were. No, people were not happy being indentured servants <laughs> and being beaten. Like there, there's no, <laughs> there, there's no buffer there. So you can't do that to individuals and expect them to understand their past and it's checkered and it's missing and there's gaps and there's holes. Like no, let's teach history as it's written. It's not ugly, it's not beautiful, but it is what it is. And we need to teach it with an open book mentality and let people gather their thoughts and process it the way they need to process it. Because yeah, I don't want teachers running around saying, well, you're this skin color and your people were all bad. Like, no. Right. People are innately bad by nature, unfortunately. We live in a fallen world. That's just, it is what it is. We can all do bad things. We can all do great things. But we definitely should not be finger pointing. Let's learn the history so we can move forward. And I applaud teachers. Thank you for being a professor and, you know, teaching and educating others because without you, I wouldn't have my degree, right? (laughs) So for that, I really want to see the teachers making more money and not the superintendents. So this is what happens. So yeah, we get a windfall of money because we say, yeah, well, the teachers need raises. Well, that money goes somewhere first and it's called the administration level. And they make more money than the teachers, now, the teachers might get a quarter raise or a dollar raise, and that needs to be the exact opposite. 
superintendents, in my opinion, in this country should never make over 100000 a year. I don't care where they are. I don't care where they live. And the administrators within those offices should also have a cap. Now, the teachers could benefit from that because then we could start paying teachers 70, 80,000 a year, which is what they should be paid. And a lot of times people will say, well, they're off, you know, and they have their days. Yeah, they do. They do have their breaks, but they're still educators. And there should be funding for their supplies. They shouldn't be going out, running around, having to spend their own money on supplies. We can do better as a country because, yeah, people, they don't like socialism, but we have it because our kids go to school on federal tax dollars. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's there. But if we have the funding there, let's fund it. And let's not disproportionately fund it to where just because a child may live in a rural community or an urban community, they're not, you know, supported as much as other kids that might be at a private school or or live, you know, in an upward bound community. All the communities, that's where we definitely need to make sure that everybody's getting the same level of education. When I was a senior in high school, I moved back to Indiana and I noticed a girl reading a book that I had in the fifth grade. And I'm like, okay, we're all, I think we're all in high school. Now. So I just asked her, I said, so, you know, what grade are you? And she's like, I'm a sophomore. I was like, I had that book when I was in the fifth grade. So I was 16 yeah. at the time. <laughs> right. And I had that book when I was 10. And this person is a sophomore learning at a fifth grade level. You know, that was something that has always stayed with me. I was like, that, that's a problem, but that's what's happening in our country. And it shouldn't be. All of our children should be learning at their grade level and even above because children can handle it if you give them the information. It's just what type of educated community do you want? Do you mm. want followers or do you want leaders? If you want leaders, then you're going to give them the information to assess and you're going to push them and you're going to make sure that they're academically sound. But if you want followers, you know, you're not going to do that. Hashaki, I'm pronouncing your name right, correct? Yes. <laughs> okay. I want my audience to um, know that this was a, I, I enjoyed this. I actually want you back on down the road. I was going to ask okay. you, I've been interviewing um, presidential candidates, especially outside of the duopoly. And mm -hmm. would you be open to being in a presidential debate with a whole field of candidates down the road? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. And we're trying to collaborate with a couple of other platforms right now to, to make that happen, you know, as the time gets closer. And so th that makes me feel good because I think we have already three or four people um, in line. And so the goal is to get around eight people, eight or nine candidates, because okay. we know that um, the visibility aspect is a, is a big detriment to people who are outside the, du yeah. the duopoly. Um, they won't advertise you. They won't promote you at all. Um, and that's just the way it functions. It's all set up. We we already know the reasons behind that. But if an audience member had a question or or a comment directed towards you, what would be the quickest way for that person to get in touch with you? Okay, they can go to the website, which is www.nicholsforpresident.com. That's nicholsforpresident.com. They can also email me, which is hashaki at nicholsforpresident.com. Dot com. And if they want any information on the Redemption Party, that's usaredemptionparty.com. Okay, I will link all that in the episode descriptions so people have that. And this episode should be up relatively quickly. 
come on YouTube and then I'll um, send out everything else and, and broadcast it accordingly. Um, this is a great episode 27. I had a great conversation with you, Thank you. and um, I can't wait to see you down the road. I will be following your campaign and beautiful people. We have a lot of people in the store. We have John Stasevich coming up next week. He's running as an independent for the president of the United States. Just have to ask him that question. They're like, what party are you in? If you're <laughs> as an independent, we obviously know that that's, you have to run as a party of some kind. And we have Brian Tui. We're going to talk about um, the sports world and how um, money has influenced sports to the point where the games are fixed and scripted. Okay. And we have three commentators coming on to talk about Flashpoint in Ukraine, how the U.S. drives hegemony towards World War III. We actually have three people that contributed to the book when it was originally published in 2014. And so you actually get firsthand um, information from the people to see how this did not start out of thin air. People present the war as something that started out of thin air. This has been a conflict going on for a long time. And so maybe we can get into um, some of the actual issues revolving the Russia-Ukraine situation right now. But have a great rest of the day, beautiful people. It's been wonderful, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, Cheers. thank you.